Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Basida, and I'm joined as always by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. It's so good to see you again, Jacob. It's been so long. It has been a while. It's good to be have you actually recording in the office. I know. This long distance relationship has been really tough on me. <laughs> and, and me as well. So, when you think of Europe, what do you think of? Fishing in the Greek islands? Driving fast on the Autobahn? trying on a custom Italian leather suit? Well, you should forget that stuff, and you should be thinking about complex international regulation. The GDPR, or General Data Protections Regulation, is a new European Union privacy law that supersedes all previous regulations on data protection. It was adopted in May 28... It was adopted in May 2018, and you probably realize this due to the sheer quantity of notifications of privacy changes you might have come across. The GDPR is a singular set of guidelines designed to moderate how personal data is used and shared. Organizations operating under the GDPR have to not only demonstrate the security of the data they are processing, but also implement technical and organizational measures to continually demonstrate their compliance. For our American, African, and Asian listeners, you're probably asking yourself, well, that's Europe. Why does it matter how data is managed in countries like France or Germany or Malta? Turns out it matters a lot. The GDPR applies to every registered organization or subsidiary that processes or monitors personal data of EU residents. Every one. It doesn't matter if you sell car parts online or stream Westworld. If you hold any personal data of European customers, you got to follow the rules. These new rules require things like encryption and anonymization of personal data. They include consistent organizational evaluations of privacy and security policies. They include provisions that make data available to users, that keep data confidential from other organizations, and that make data more resilient to misuse. The GDPR does a lot. If you are a non-European company and want to do business in the EU with over 500 million citizens, you're going to have to comply with the GDPR. And according to what we have seen so far, compliance is not taken lightly by the Europeans. Depending on how severe non-compliance and severity of potential personal data breaches are, GDPR fines can go as high as 20 million euros, or 4% of annual global turnover, whichever is higher. So let's say Google really drops the ball on personal data protection. Under GDPR, they could be fined 4.5 billion euros. For lesser offenses, the fine is half to 10 million euros, or up to 2% of revenues. Again, whichever is higher. You can buy a lot of baguettes with 4.5 billion euros, Jacob. It's important to be aware what exactly the GDPR actually protects and what it defines as personal data. According to the EU, personal data, and bear with me here, is any information like name, email address, and ID number that can identify you. It can also be web data like your location, IP address, cookies data, and other browsing data. It can be medical information like health records, genetic information, and biometric data. It can even be racial or ethnic data as well as sexual orientation and political opinion. Anything that can be traced to you is personal. But what makes the GDPR really special is that it entitles rights for data subjects. It creates kind of an internet bill of rights 
setting out expectations to anyone who handles personal information. EU citizens are entitled to a notification within 72 hours if an organization's security is breached. Under, GD under the GDPR, EU citizens are able to, by law, get information about how, where, and for what their personal data is being used. And if they are unhappy with what an organization has collected, EU citizens can have their data erased, known as the right to be forgotten. One can halt or cease any and all distribution of data by any party who uses your information. Associated with this is the mandated data portability. This means that customers can receive personal data concerning their time online and have the right to transfer to another controller, allowing for customers to switch from one provider to another. For the first time, you can actually own your own data. Of course, it's too early to say how organizations will react to these new policies. But one thing is for sure. The GDPR is a huge step towards empowering citizens and their data. To understand this further and to navigate the complexity of European regulations, we're going to turn now to our expert. Sure, I'm Kush O'Randy, and I'm an attorney working for a multinational professional services firm focusing on information security and privacy risk management. Well, thank you for joining me here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking about the GDPR. First off, I think the most obvious question is, what is the GDPR? Sure, sure. Um, the General Data Protection Regulation, it's a major European Union law with global implications. It regulates the processing of information by an individual, a company, or an organization of personal data relating to individuals in the European Union. Uh, a company storing, processing, or using data related to an EU citizen is subject to GDPR's requirements, along with its citations for non-compliance and notably possible fines of up to 4% of your global revenue, up to 20 million euros. Um, the rules don't apply to data processed by an individual for purely personal reasons or for activities carried out in the home, so long as there's no connection to a professional or commercial activity. Um, obviously, a lot of companies outside the EU collect, use, and process data related to EU citizens, including many companies in the U.S., so it's a pretty significant piece of data protection legislation. So this isn't something that's just isolated to the Eurozone. This is something that's affecting U.S. companies and U.S. citizens as well. Very much so, very much so. All right, that's good to know. So one of the main privacy laws that people might be familiar with, especially in Europe, is the right to be forgotten. This is kind of, you know, the basis of a lot of privacy laws. So can we go into what is the right to be forgotten? Sure. Essentially, it's a privacy concept that allows someone to have their personal data or information deleted from the public domain. GDPR has explicitly codified this concept in Article 17 as the right to erasure and states that a data subject has the right to obtain from the data controller the erasure of personal data con concerning him or her without undue delay. If the controller publicizes that data, other controllers also have to comply with the request, and the controller has the obligation to erase that data in a timely fashion in one of six circumstances. Um, the personal data is no longer necessary in relation to the purposes for which it was collected, um, data has been unlawfully processed, etc., etc., the right to be forgotten really has the most pertinent ramifications when it comes to, for example, posting content on the internet about one's criminal past or transgressions. Um, there's an obvious tension there between freedom of speech and expression on one hand, and what amounts to a personal privacy but also pro-censorship stance on the other hand. Um, and you've got social policy arguments on both sides of that scale. Do you want to be able to 
conduct an internet search on a potential future spouse or employee to determine if they might have been a suspect in a murder investigation once upon a time. Um, contrast that with other types of disclosures of personal information, like, for instance, revenge pornography, um, where it's an authorized disclosure, but the scope of that authorization is now exceeded, and now there's photos of you on TMZ.com. Um, you have to balance out those two competing interests. It definitely poses a philosophical quandary of that, especially tied to your online identity and your real identity as well. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to be getting too much into that today. <laughs> sure. So one of the major aspects of this uh, of this this legislation is basically there's an integration of the 28 data protection authorities, and mm-hmm. I, we'd like to know what is the what is basically the consequence of this integration of these 28 data protection authorities. Sure. I'm. I mean, the positive ramifications of any kind of Integration like this include consistent applications of laws throughout the European economic area, which makes compliance easier for companies. It also reduces the burden on innovation. It helps citizens understand their rights more clearly. Um, Each member state can adopt stricter privacy laws for certain aspects using the GDPR as a baseline. Um, One key example is that GDPR doesn't define at what age someone is considered a child. So for parental consent purposes, that consent is required for kids under 16, unless the member state wants to lower that to no lower than 13. Um, On the whole, increased consistency is always a good thing when it comes to regulation and enforcement because it's just easier for companies to understand what their obligations are, which in turn helps them comply quickly, effectively, and bolsters your privacy protections as the end user. It's good to know. It sounds like it's just a benefit to most people in general, honestly. I would agree. I would agree. Um, it, it's definitely doing a lot of important new things while reinforcing a lot of privacy rights that European citizens have come to expect for some time with some peripheral benefits for the rest of us. That's always good. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's funny you should say that, uh, the peripheral benefits. Do you see the, the GDPR as being the first step of greater legislation, or do you kind of see it as being like the rules for the road for like the foreseeable future? I would actually say both. Um, GDPR is the successor to the EU's data protection directive, um, and it's widely expected that Europe will continue leading the charge for data protection laws for quite some time, as it has. Um, That said, it contains a lot of, and I quote, cutting-edge clauses that foreshadow potential changes to other privacy regulations. For example, um, GDPR has now imposed a requirement for some companies to have a mandatory data protection officer, or DPO. Um, In my opinion, it is entirely foreseeable that other regulators would follow suit. Um, The largest companies or the ones that primarily handle personal information as a big component of their business, they've already got those. They've had them for a while. But part of the remainder of the marketplace has stepped up and started sourcing their own chief data protection and privacy officers for the first time in many cases. Um, And, you know, a DPO is quickly becoming a regular part of the C-suite for many organizations. So for our listeners who might not be as familiar, what would be a DPO's, a data protection officer's, like, main responsibilities, or what exactly is the position? It could entail a variety of different responsibilities. Um, You could be the primary signatory for a variety of agreements. Um, You could be the point of contact for regulators. You could be point of contact for incident response. Um, It's really a malleable definition, partially because it's just such a new role. Right. It's, my point is more, it's just not 
just a tech officer. It's someone who is dealing a lot with the legal ramifications of, of data protection. Absolutely. And, and actually, that's a that's a very good point. Um, you know, DPOs are sometimes attorneys. They're sometimes technical specialists. Um, sometimes they're risk managers. Sometimes they sit in legal organizations, regardless of whether or not they're any of those. Um, sometimes they sit in technical offices and organizations. So it, it really is across the board. So we've seen a lot of you know, these, there's a lot of changes here. This is, you know, most people see this as uh, progress towards the future. But wh- why does this legislation matter to us? Um, well, in setting this comprehensive global standard that European citizens can look to in knowing their rights, it has bolstered, you know, the regulatory authorities in prosecuting violations of the standard. It provides clearish guidance that companies can use in complying with the law across multiple jurisdictions that are subject to GDPR. Um, but that has a cascading effect. A lot of organizations that comply with those standards realize two things. Well, one, it might be cheaper and easier for us to just comply with it out of an abundance of caution. Um, and two, uh, looking into the future, you know, it could be foreshadowing other potential privacy changes that happen in our landscape. Um, which happens at the state level, which could happen at the national level, regulator level, et cetera. Right. If you're having to do business in Europe, you know, you're going to have to play by their rules. So why not just apply those rules in the U.S. anyway? Yep. Yep. In some cases, it may be more cost effective just to do that. So that's fair. Mm-hmm. Do you what sort of rights will people sort of have to their own data that is being collected now? Well, citizens will have enhanced rights to access and understand how their data is being used before they hand it over. Um, They'll know more about if and when it gets compromised. It gives citizens a stronger right to be forgotten, like we talked about earlier. Um, It mandates the concept of privacy by design, where data protection safeguards are considered at earlier phases of software and product development, as opposed to being bolted on as an afterthought. Um, Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, right? This, This way you don't have a situation where you... You, know, you build XYZ system or product, and then you realize, oh, wait, our customer agreements obligate us to keep that client data in country X, but our system depends on handling that information via third-party cloud resource that's not in country X. So there's that, and then you know, citizens also have the power to withdraw consent at any time, uh, to know that their right to do that before they give their consent. There's stricter notice requirements particularly in cases if the controller wants to transfer personal data to a third country or an international organization, et cetera. There's a lot. (laughs) So there's a lot of language in the GDPR that might be somewhat confusing that ties to the individual and as well to businesses. I just wanted to go over three particular pieces of the vocabulary of it that that I think are worth noting, specifically clearly inform, affirmative consent, and well-defined purpose. Could you give me a little bit more detail about the meaning of these in the context of the GDPR? Sure. Um, There's a lot of room for interpretation on the whole statute, really. Um, But I'll just give you my personal opinion for all these in a nutshell. Essentially, GDPR wants the end user, the person that is handing over their information to a controller or processor, to know the exact reason that they're doing that. So that the information you are giving me is going to be used for X service that I'm providing, but also is going to be used by my buddy Y over here who is also going to turn around and sell it to Z Corp, uh, which is going to ultimately improve the services that we offer to you. Um, So there's that. Um, The purpose requirement necessitates that you clearly understand all of that. 
laid out in my clearly worded and freshly updated privacy policy from less than two months ago. Um, and in, in recital 32, ticking a box on a website could indicate affirmative consent, but a pre-tick box or inactivity doesn't equate to consent. Um, this consent can be withdrawn at any time under Article 7, Section 3. The controllers have to inform data subjects of their right to withdraw that consent before that consent is given. So in a nutshell, um, these terms empower consumers. Uh, they force companies to clarify the purpose of their information collections, which from my experience uh, and by extension can reduce the scope and frequency of those collections in the first place. Going back to the role of the GDPR in the U.S., should the U.S. adopt the GDPR, or should we try to forge our own legislation and path here? There will always be a tension between innovation and regulation. Um, for quite some time, major companies in the U.S. didn't really think about privacy protection. In that environment, though, grew many now globally successful businesses and services that make a living by essentially monetizing the personal data, preferences, and habits of the users. Um you know, there's arguments for and against that type of business model, which could take up another podcast by itself. Oh, certainly. Um, but no one can deny just how much of an impact that these services have had on our lives. Um, even as a privacy nerd, I use and adore some of these services in a controlled fashion, where I entrust them to some of my most sensitive details, photographs, connections, while I avoid some others like the plague. So... We've innovated a lot, and we've come up with some great technologies and great companies that collect a lot of information. Um, but that big data innovation is now entering the, the age of the data breach, where almost everyone's information gets compromised at one point or another. You hear about a new major hack attack or misplaced laptop or exposed database pretty much every week, every day, if you look hard enough. Um, on top of this riskier than ever cybersecurity threat landscape with the vast volumes of customer data that are being collected nowadays, even totally accidental breaches can have major consequences. Um, so essentially, how do we respond to all that? Uh, I mean, you know, quintessentially, we've had this American approach with a patchwork of data, various data protection statutes all over the 50 states. Um, no nationwide data protection regime. Um, part of why that is is because we don't have an expressly granted right to privacy under the Constitution. The Supreme Court has stated that it's implied, and some states have granted express rights, but there's no express constitutional guarantee of privacy. So under this patchwork, state laws have you know, some strong protections in some areas, like protected health information, which we hold dear, um, but limited protection and other nuanced questions of affirmative consent, uh, unchecked collection, reuse, resale of our data to disclosed or undisclosed third parties. Um, you know, that, that picture is not all bad. We've also got an increasingly active national data protection regulator, the Federal Trade Commission. They protect privacy by taking law enforcement actions for companies that violate privacy rights, that mislead customers and failing to maintain security for sensitive information, reasonable security. Um, but it still suffers from limited jurisdiction and authority. We've also got plaintiffs, attorneys, and class action law firms, which push the envelope on data protection causes of action. So, you know, the threat of regulatory enforcement and private sector litigation helps to keep some companies in line. Um, but again, taking all of that into account, um, it's kind of a complicated picture of how to best move forward to bolster our privacy protection overall. 
Um, I would say a national data protection statute that is consistently applied, much like, you know, seatbelt and airbag regulations for cars would go a long way in providing some of the benefits of GDPR, uh, consistency of application, predictability for companies that comply with the law, better understanding of your rights as a citizen, um, Ease of reading, frankly. Ease of reading, for sure. Um, You know, obviously a lot more consistency in all the privacy policies that you sign every day. Um, And, of course, with with any regulation, there's the argument that it impedes growth and innovation in this environment. You know, going back to our mandatory DPO example, having a dedicated DPO is not cheap. Um, But, you know, we we need to get closer into the direction of a national standard. Um, You know, California, for instance, just passed its California Consumer Protection Act of 2018, Um, very much rushed out the door, so likely to be modified a little bit before its own compliance deadline in 2020. But, you know, it too was clearly influenced by a lot of concepts found in GDPR, like the right to be forgotten, um, added transparency for the end user. Um, the international association of privacy professionals estimates that up to half a million U S businesses could be subject to it as it's currently written. So, you know, there's a ton of potential, you know, for GDPR to influence future privacy-related re- legislation. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, life is about balance in every way possible. But I think we could forge a balanced approach towards regulation with an emphasis on consistent definitions of personal information, application of the law, strong authorities to enforce it, um, added attention to proactive factors like data breach and infosec risk management, all of that would be beneficial for you and me, the end users that ultimately give up our data in exchange to use these fancy technologies. I think that strikes a good balance between the benefits of like lesser regulation and you know this increased regulation of the privacy framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in closing, and in light of the GDPR and other privacy and data protection regulations, what are things that you think that everyone should universally be aware of and you know should be thinking about? Well... Aside from the obvious and, you know, looking at the statutory requirements themselves, we're at a pivotal point in this era of the mega breach where, you know, organizations, and by that I don't just mean businesses, governments, nonprofits, anyone that collects personal information. Organizations need to better communicate what it is that they're collecting. Um, Why are they collecting it? Need to make sure that the information is actually used for that purpose. Um, If it's sent off to third parties, that such transfers are clearly stated, agreed to by the user. You need to keep track of these collections at the macro level using, you know, clearly defined data collection process, policy, inventory for your customers. Um, Don't forget investments in personnel, DPOs, staff to handle customer data requests. Um, But of course, you know, most relevant to your listeners, um, you can't have privacy and data protection without strong information security, right? Um, Having a strong information security posture helps you in a number of ways. We're obviously biased, but, you know, first and foremost, in being able to prevent, detect, respond to, and recover from data losses and breaches, that's obvious. But I'm also of the mindset that it helps in complying with things like GDPR because, you know, you get all the peripheral benefits of thinking through and defining processes for collecting information, knowing what happens to it when you get it. Where does it go? Whose infrastructure does it touch? What jurisdictions does it touch? Um, Being able to understand that and protect your infrastructure overall makes it easier to enforce privacy protections of any kind, no matter, you know, when they come down the pike. Certainly. I mean, privacy, security, inexorably linked, you know, and it's it's good. It's good you bring that up. Thank you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's funny cause like historically, you know, organizations can easily understand like tangible asset and supply chain management. You know, who are we buying our computers and servers from? That's, that's kind of cake. Uh, but from an information security sense, you have to think about information supply chain management uh, in a globally interconnected world where your collected data goes once it's in your domain and whose infrastructure does it land on when you're doing your day-to-day business transactions? Are you posting screenshots of XYZ customer product on this certain third-party cloud resource that does business overseas? Is that a problem? Um, you know, there, there's a million def- different recommendations. I would say it's easier to find a right answer than it is a wrong one. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You've been very insightful on this very sure. complicated topic. Sure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Before you can continue listening to this podcast, I must make it aware to you that we have changed our privacy policies. We have now, you know, it is now required that you uh, sign over all of your credit card information to continue listening to this podcast. I'm sorry. You know, we have to be clear about it before we just collected it. But, you know, the new regulation is forcing us to disclose that, you know, such a pain. Yeah. Europe is tying our hands. We're so sorry. We're sorry. I mean, we're we're not sorry. We were doing it before. But, you know, now now we have to tell you. So we are sorry we have to tell you. I'm sorry. And also we're supposed to tell you within 72 hours that we've been breached. We've been breached nine times, and all of your data is just just everywhere. Yep. Okay, I want to point out that we're very close to one of the EU's council operations, and it feels very apropos that we're talking about this, um, because, like, Europe is really important, you know, in the grand geopolitical sense, and uh, it, it's so interesting that something like, like data protection law is something that, that's really driving forward in, in the EU, and... Um, it's interesting to see, well, what's our relationship? What's the American relationship with the GDPR? Right. I mean, in the interview, we got a sense, you know, I, I feel like it was very couched, you know, very, very fairly, rather than a sense of just the U.S. being left behind. It's more just like things are moving forward and the U.S. can join on it and it might not. But I think it's an interesting question to ask still about, you know, where we where the U.S. is in terms of privacy right now. You know, and, and do we see this as being something that we want to continue, you know, focusing on in the U.S.? Or do you, do you feel like, you know, we're just going to be adopting what others are, are putting out for the time being? I, I think American citizens and American corporations care about privacy, but it's not something that's really been enumerated. And I think this step forward by the EU is, is essentially creating this common denominator. And it's saying, these are the regulations that we're going to hold you to. And these larger tech companies and any company that wants to be involved in Europe, which is a huge market, needs to follow these new rules. And if you don't, it's going to be a pretty steep penalty for those. Yeah, we don't really have that same guaranteed right of privacy that they do in, in the EU. And it, I think that's interesting in how it develops in the in the U.S. I think a way that it could develop is obviously pulling from abroad. But also, like, the other possibility exists that, you know, privacy can just be continuously linked with security developments. And, you know, if, if it's couched in that language, it's possible that, you know, you could see greater expansion of privacy rights based off just the idea of, like, higher cybersecurity. But, you know, I mean, in the U.S., I think there there's kind of a somewhat of a degree of, like, a fight about the how, how we view privacy still. I mean, if you can recall going way back to our earlier episodes about, you know, the iPhone issue, you know, mm. some p- people who had pretty adamant stances about whether or not the iPhone should have been opened or not. And that, that, that asks questions about what kind of rights to privacy you have there as well still. Right, right. And yeah. and talk about uh, whether or not the iPhone should be opened. There are all these new questions that come up uh, with the GDPR that didn't really come up before. Like, do you still have these rights? Are they passed on to your children? Like, do your 
children have your have the right to remove any information from one of your parents or to what extent do organizations under the under the GDPR have to respond like do other nations do other state sponsored companies have to follow these laws and if they do what kind of political repercussions would follow yeah that's certainly interesting and I, I think this this is really non secretary but I, I read this yesterday the GDPR is kind of known for being like really really dense like it's like a large document and we've summarized it and um you know i've I've read some of it and tried to pull some of that into what the writing is here but (laughs) there's this app called calm have you heard of it no it's like an app that you listen to to go to sleep and so one of like their (laughs) their most downloaded versions of, of of one of their their things that they read is there's this british man just reading through the GDPR for like hours. <laughs> the European Union and all parties therein see above uh, regarding privacy. That it's like really, mm-hmm. it's fun. I wonder if people would pay more attention to like regulations in cyber security if it was like read by I don't know like John Ham or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> or like uh, H John John H Benjamin H John Benjamin from from Bob's Burgers or something. Yeah, I think uh, maybe that's actually <laughs> how we reach a better audience with this. That, that's how we reach across to to the American citizens. That's how we get privacy in our country. We get famous voice actors to read laws. <laughs> so, like Jacob, I want to get your thoughts on this data portability option. The idea that not only can you erase anything that you that any any data that companies have in you or corporations have in you online, but you can choose to take that information, take it all, stop them from distributing it, stop them from using it for targeted advertisements or whatever, and choose to give it to someone else. So. The whole idea here is that if you're unsatisfied with the way a company has been treating you, you can say, you're not fine. You're not going to know anything about my profile. You're not going to know any of this important information that you can use to give me advertisements, and I'm going to use it somewhere else. It's like a, it's like a new form of currency, right? Like, who, who do you trust with your information? That's a really good question. I also kind of find it hard to believe that you'd be able to just, like, take your data away from somebody. I feel like it's so, it's so hard for them to just not keep it. Like, it's like, oh, we've already done some processing. I bet they'll try to find a loophole and be like, oh, well, okay, yeah, you can have your data back. But it's like, we already ran an algorithm on you once, so we're just going to keep using what, what you, we already had. Right, right. You. We're going to add you to a file that has people that are similar to you, but yeah, they're yeah. not personally identifiable to you. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure they'll find loopholes around that to some degree. But I, I do think that's a fascinating concept, the idea that you can move your data and the, the, your data itself is like a currency that you are now kind of voting with what companies you approve of, which is kind of an interesting perspective on this. You know, I, I, I really think it's fascinating. I think it's the idea is possibly maybe that it is improving competition between firms. I think that's the end goal is that people are going to want to put their data in places that are not doing the shadiest practices. But you know, it's, it, I think it's, I think that's kind of what it's rooted in. I think that's interesting. And another, another big takeaway here is that companies can now assign value more or less to a customer's personal information. They could say, okay, this information is worth this much here. And there's a startup actually in Israel right now. And it is, it's kind of operating in that space that the GDPR has opened. And they're essentially a data broker. You can store your information with them. They could use it and you get like paid for it. Um, I don't have all the details of it because startups are usually pretty fuzzy about that kind of stuff. Um, but the idea that there's companies that can exist because of this regulation is mind boggling. That's kind of strange the way you've just worded it. It almost makes it seem like, you know, we've been up to this point content with companies taking our data for free stuff and they use it for their own purposes. But now you're almost selling your own data to them. 
you're just kind of getting more value out of your data as it is it's still kind of you know it's still kind of dark in a way you you yeah. if you think about it you're still kind of selling like okay well here's my information to you how much are you willing to give me new phone right. for you know uh, my birthday and also where I've lived for the past 10 years and my closest friend. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's worth a new phone to me. Yeah. It's like this weird corporate commodification of your identity. You know, it's like, it's like someone getting um, uh, a subway, like a subway logo tattooed on their forehead. It kind of is in a way. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Free $5 footlongs or $6 footlongs now. Free $6 footlongs for the rest of your life. If you, uh, if you tattoo the subway logo on your forehead. I mean, if it's free for the rest of your life, it doess not matter if it's five dollars or six dollars. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's just tattoo, yes. uh, tattoo forehead cost. Not um, worth it. Yeah, which I guess with the GDPR, we'll finally be able to understand how much a tattoo of subway logo on your forehead really costs. Um, <laughs> but no, I think that commodification angle of this is so so interesting. Um, ballpark, how much do you think? How do you think we would measure this? How much do you think? How much would you sell your data profile to somebody? Not that, that you would, but yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating question because now we've, uh, interestingly enough, we're putting values on people. If yeah. you think about it, which and is if, terrifying, and that always its own leads right. in great directions. Oh, totally. Uh, but you know what? I think it'll kind of mirror how social networks work in the sense that you have people who have large social networks. Their data is probably more important. Yeah, those those influencers. Yeah, the influencers. You know, you're going to target those points of articulation. Oh, that's right. I busted out some graph theory. You're welcome. Oh, wow. The the three or four people who, who get that are just going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they like graph theory. So they, they, they're pretty, pretty mellow, pretty mellow folks. Oh. Probably just slow capping, something like that. If you want to keep up to date with what's going on, we occasionally post news articles as well. You can follow us on Twitter at Decrypted Podcast. You can also check out our website at decryptedpodcast.com. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to send it out to your friends. You know, spread the word. It's always great to bring cybersecurity knowledge to the greater populace. That's the end goal, folks. Yeah, my mom listens. And she she, she says you sound very handsome, Jacob. Oh, thank you. <laughs> my mom also listens. She didn't say that, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorps program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. 